Donc, vous... Good morning, everyone. My name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and it's my privilege to lead the team. Um, the devoted group is out this morning, so if you're in the 15 to 18s, um, you're leaving now. Just to say, if you want um, any additional information um, on the preach, it's up on the blog. So if you go to the uh, King's Church website you, um, and then follow the preach series slide, you will come to the blog and it will say a little bit more on there about this preach series and we'll be following it week by week by week. Um, it was also my privilege yesterday evening, I was in here for the, uh, well, just very briefly, I was in here for the youth ball and it was amazing how... how Hall 2 was absolutely transformed. Um, it looked completely different. Um, lots of black around, lights, music, three-course dinner. Some of the photos that you'll have seen up on here at the start of the meeting were all our young people, you know, all suited up and ready to go and the girls had long dresses on and all of this. It was, it was really, really good and such a credit to our youth leadership team. And there's no point in clapping them because they're not here, they've just gone out. But just if you see them um, later on, do, do commend them because they work incredibly, incredibly hard um, in all they do. Brilliant. This morning we're continuing our preach series in 1 Timothy. This letter was written to a man called Timothy, who's probably in his mid-30s, while he was leading the church at Ephesus. And I introduced Ephesus and Timothy and Paul to you last Week. The main theme of the letter is that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, leads to practical and visible change in the lives of those who believe it. So if you, if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, if you are wonderfully born again, do you know what? It will have an impact on your life. You cannot, you will not stay the same. And it will be seen as you live out your life. It might not be immediately visible, but it will be. And, but that is in contrast to false teaching. That is in contrast to those that teach things that are not true. And so you can tell the difference by the fruit in people's lives. Is, is the teaching true or false? And Timothy is called to preach sound doctrine. Now C.S. Lewis said this, If you do not listen to theology, or if you do not listen to sound doctrine, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that that you will have a lot of wrong wrong ones. Because actually, everyone has ideas about God. You only have to walk down the street, ask the man or the woman in the street, tell me about God, and they will tell you something. Because actually we are all shaped by many, many different things. The problem is, isn't that people don't have views about God, it's that they've got the wrong ones. And they don't go to the wellspring of life. So sat here today, we've got views about God. We've all got views about God. What I want to ask you is, what are they shaped by? Where did you get them? Now hopefully, many of them you got from here. And this platform, you may have got them from your community group leader. You may have got them from Richard Nana when you did the discipleship course. There may be, there's a number of really good sources, but you may have just got them from your family, your upbringing, 
where you're brought up will impact it. Maybe what your mum and dad believed. It may not cause you to believe the same thing, it may cause you to believe the complete opposite. But, but it may be your family, maybe your circumstances. It may be books you've read or, or you've just looked on the internet. If I want to find out about God, go on the internet. TV, media, or even the culture that we live in affects our views about God. And this is what Paul is dealing with with Timothy. He is encouraging Timothy, and we're going to read it in a minute, to focus on sound doctrine, but also to stop false teaching. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's towards the end of the Bible, and we're going to pick it up in verse 3. We're just going to read verse 3 and 4 to start with. We're going to work out, I'm going to read a few verses, explain it, and then we're going to move on and, and work our way through the passage. So this is Paul writing to Timothy. As I urged you when, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. You see, in Ephesus, the church there had really good foundations. Paul had been there for three years. A few years earlier, he had sent the letter of Ephesians to them with some of the great theological, um, uh, biblical heights in it. But they were getting distracted. Men were teaching false doctrine and devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It was probably a bit, of a bit of the Old Testament retold, mixed up with fanciful stories, but also adding a few other things in there, things like forbidding marriage. No, it's not right that people get married. Or abstaining from certain types of foods. And we pick that up in uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Now, to us that may seem a little bit daft, but to them it would have probably been relatively reasonable. And Paul wanted Timothy to command these men not to teach false doctrine anymore. He said, Timothy, I want you to stop them teaching it. There's people in the church teaching this stuff, I want you to stop them doing it. And the reason it was a problem is that it was taking people away from God's work. It wasn't just that people were focusing on some fairy tales but actually it was distracting the church away from God's work, which was by faith. They were missing out on what was on God's agenda. Now if we miss out verses, the end of verse 4 and 5, we're going to jump on to verse 6, because I want to come back to 4 and 5 in a minute. Some have wandered away from these things. Oh, actually, I need to read verse 5 or it will make no sense. I'll read verse 5 first. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these things and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. In fact, some of these false teachers had wandered away from the foundational bits of the Gospel. So, G, so Paul is saying, look, what's at the heart of the Gospel? Well, it's, it's about God's work, it's by faith. The goal of the command is love. It comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, and people, are, they've, they've wandered away, they've lost all of that. 
They're wandering away from that and they've turned to meaningless talk. In actual fact, Paul's saying it wasn't really worth them opening their mouths because nothing that they were saying was advancing the kingdom. It wasn't advancing God's kingdom. It wasn't adding anything to the faith of the saints. It was adding nothing to strengthening the church. In actual fact, they were causing disputes. Then into verse 7, as we've already seen. They had ambitions to be teachers, but they hadn't got a clue. And what made it worse was they were arrogant with it. They so confidently affirmed something they didn't really know very much about. When, when I started leading the church here in Hastings, I don't think I planned it this way, but by God's grace how it worked was, I found there were two people that influenced my life who, who knew how to build church. They, they had done it before. One of them was Steve Tibbet up in Catford. And if you really want to know if the truth works, you, you need to put it into practice. It's not just about knowing the right books or understanding certain things. It's actually about, no, it starts there, but then actually you work it out on the ground and that's when you really get to know the truth. And it's the same for us. Jesus said, didn't he, in John, he said, what did he say? Let me go back, let me uh, find out. To the Jews that have believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching, not, not if you know it, not if you vaguely recollect something that I said in the past, no, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and what will happen? The truth will set you free. And there's an outworking. The, the whole Christian faith isn't, isn't just about getting more and more knowledge. It's about actually we grow in our knowledge but we apply it in our lives and then the truth sets us free. These false teachers, they weren't just doing that. They are just spouting on about any old stuff really. Had no practical impact on their life. It didn't bring a change. didn't make, bring a transformation. I'm going to jump ahead but I'm going to do that anyway. It didn't cause them to worship Jesus more. When they heard this truth, it didn't cause them to glorify Jesus. It didn't affect their conscience and bring them to a point of repentance. It wasn't practical like it says in Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and training and teaching and the man of God might be fully equipped for every good work. I think I've merged a few together. But you know... Now it's useful, it brings about effect, the gospel. It brings about change. The only effect of this false teaching, the only impact of this false teaching was that the false teachers were arrogantly arguing and it was causing dispute. And Timothy had to command these men to stop it. Did these false teachers think they were wrong? What do you reckon? No. They didn't think it was false. Would they have liked being commanded? To put your hand up if you like being commanded. No one likes being commanded. But Paul instructed Timothy, 
as he led the church. No, you've got to command these men to stop teaching this stuff because it's doing harm to the body of Christ. It's doing harm to the church. And at times, a shepherd of the church needs to do that. Needs to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. We've got to stop this. This is not right. It's not something anyone ever likes doing, but that's what Timothy had to do in that situation. Now let's go back to verse 4 and 5 because this is the centrepiece. It's the centrepiece of the letter and it's the centrepiece of the passage that we're looking at. These promote controversies rather than God's work which is by, it's by faith. The goal of this command is Oh, guys, we're going you know, to have to work a bit harder here. The goal of, this, the, goal of the command is? No. Which comes from? Very good. Very good. We, we're gonna, we will get there. We will get there. One of the goals of, one of the main goals of apostolic instruction, one of the main goals of Bible teaching is the instruction is to love. And it's centred to this whole letter. God is looking for a community that loves. A community that is patient. A community that is kind. Not envious. Not boastful or rude or self-seeking. Not one that is easily angered. One that keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but actually one that always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's love. So when Paul here talks to Timothy, the goal of this command is love. That's a reflection of it. We often read that passage out at weddings. That's not the context it was written. It was written to a local church. We're to love in this way. We've patience. You may ask, where does this sort of love spring from? Where does it come from? Well, it says in the passage, this love springs from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart rather than one filled with sinful desire. A good conscience rather than one laden with guilt. A sincere faith rather than pretense and hypocrisy. That's where the love comes from. It comes out of those. You may ask, well, where where do those things come from? Where does a pure heart come from? Where on earth can I go to get a good conscience? Where can I get a sincere faith from? Well, the first thing I want to say to you is you can't get it from within yourself. There's actually a twofold answer. And the first part of the answer is you need to hear the wonderful news about Jesus Christ. Because you can't love in the way that Jesus described love on your own. You can't do it. When Nicodemus, a really good man, a religious man but a good man, came to Jesus and he was asking him about some of these things, do you know what Jesus said to him? He says, you must be born again. You must have a fresh start. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it in your own effort. You cannot do it with good works or even your best desire. It cannot get you there. It is completely out of reach. It is impossible for any person to touch that 
without Christ. And you may be sat here today thinking, actually, I'd, 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 love, you know, I'd like to be a better person. You can't be on your own. You need to understand that you are helpless without Christ. In Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, our best efforts. You may be quite a good person, but you still need Christ's love. You are dead in your sin. You need the grace and the mercy of God to flood your soul. You need your heart to be purified. Rather than one filled with evil desires, you need your heart to be purified. Do you know what? You need your conscience to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Rather than one laden with guilt. You need to learn to lean on Jesus Christ as your hope and your security and your sure foundation rather than your own effort, ability and desire because you cannot do it on your own. The hope is found in Jesus Christ and in the Gospel. And whether you've never heard that before or whether you heard it and you believed it 20 years ago, do you know what? It's still true today for you. If you want to know where does that love come from, it springs from the Gospel. How do I grow in God? Where do I go to find that sincere faith? That peace? That clear conscience? Actually, we find it at the foot of the cross. We find it in that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. We now have his imputed right life in our place and we can stand secure and confident knowing it's not on my merit but on Jesus' merit. That's where I get it from. But actually every day that's where I come back to. That's why when we worship, I, I hope we worship with passion. But why? Because without Christ we have nothing. We have nothing without Jesus. We're, we're, it's just a waste of space us gathering. Absolute waste of space. If we do not understand the miracle and the mystery and the wonder of the Gospel that I was dead in my sin and then the Holy Spirit breathed upon me and I saw Christ, I could accept Him. I couldn't even do accept Him on my own without the Holy Spirit breathing life into me. I was dead. I accepted Him then my heart was transformed. I was given new life. I've been given a fresh start. And then every day from then on is on the basis of that new life in Christ, not on anything from the past. That's the start of sound teaching. If we don't start there, we we have nothing. It's not a moralistic gospel of try a bit harder. It's actually that I am dead in my sin without hope until Jesus Christ comes and raises me from the dead. Then I have a chance, a fresh start. But then I live every day. How? In faith. The goal is, come on, what is love? I start to reflect out the love that Christ Jesus poured into me. I start to live out the good life that Christ Jesus has given to me. I come back to those things again. A heart purified, a conscience cleansed. I learn to lean on a humble and sincere faith in Christ, knowing that there's no point to pretense or hypocrisy. I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus Christ. Just as we began is how we go on every day. We began by the Spirit, in faith, responding to the Bible. That's where your Christian life started. You heard the truth and you responded to it. In faith, faith leapt within you, you came alive. That's how you live every day. 
You live on the basis of the Word of God, on sound doctrine. What Paul is saying here is this. If you put the right teaching in, the truth, you will get the right life out, one shaped by love. We're not just talking about truth. No, right truth in. If you put the wrong teaching in, you'll get the wrong life out, shaped one shaped by selfishness. You've got a gardener. I'm no gardener. But, so people who are gardeners tell me, get a tree, a little tree, you plant it in the middle of your garden. You water it. Pure water. You need sunlight on it. And you fertilise, you dig fertiliser into it. You are just the same. You need the water of the Spirit washing over your life. Do you know what it is to be filled with the Spirit, church? It brings life. It makes Jesus real. You need to know what it is to rest in God's presence in worship. Let me ask you again, church, when we worship and you look around, you see many hands in the air, and, are you encountering Jesus? Are you loving him? Does your heart ache? And you need to dig in the Word of God. You dig in the fertiliser of the Word of God around your life. Pure water, sunlight, fertiliser. Do any of you have your Bible by your bedside? Some of you? I hope you read it. You'd never think, would you, of getting your dinner... No, close, cook my dinner. Ah, oh, a lovely dinner. An amazing, amazing spread of food. And I take it upstairs and I put it on my bedside and I go to sleep. Wake up in the morning, I leave it there, I go off to work. Come back, dinner's there. If you did that, you'd end up like me. You don't do that, do we? You eat your dinner. And for too many of us, we don't eat our dinners, we put them on our bedside table or on our shelf, and we think that somehow the word wafts over us as we sleep, and it will, I'm sure it does, I'm sure it does me good. Now, none of us really believe that, do we? But sometimes we wonder, why is life so hard? Why do I find it hard to focus on God? And part of the reason is you don't read the Bible. You don't open the Word of God. It's food to you. I treasure the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Church, I, I'm, I'm not, looking, not looking to have a go. Well, no, no, no. Just to, I want to stir you, church. Starts in the Word. Some of us aren't growing very much because we're not eating. It's not spiritual warfare. It's not the devil's after you. You're just not reading the Bible. 
You're not worshipping. You're not inviting the Spirit to come and fill you. And we do that Sunday by Sunday and we, we, we're passionate we want to do that when we gather corporate. It's key. But, but we must do it other times too. And I know this thing's very basic to you, but it's good for me to remind you about these things. And I'll probably always be reminding you about these things. Lord, I ask you that as we pick our Bibles up over the coming days that you'd make them live afresh to us. Lord, as we open Mark chapter 1 and start reading about you, I pray you'd make it live in our hearts. I pray you'd bring it alive. I pray life would sweep in. Holy Spirit, would you come? Open our eyes that we'd understand. Catch us up again in your purposes and your plans, I pray. Amen. Just a, just a comment. If, if you don't know where to start, start in Mark. Mark chapter 1. And the only other thing I'd say to you is ask God to speak to you as you read it and then read it slowly. Okay? Don't worry if you read the same thing, same chapter, two or three times. That's absolutely fine. But invite the Holy Spirit to come. We touched very briefly on what some of the false teaching was that they were facing at Ephesus. These sort of fanciful things, uh, a mixture of the Old Testament law, all of that sort of stuff. What false teaching do we face today? What things might be stopping us growing as God would have us grow? And it's not just the sort of wackier stuff off God TV. I'm not talking about that. What other stuff Maybe things that come from our culture that shape our decisions and, and, and probably we don't even realise that they're affecting us in a negative way. Now I imagine that the list could be quite long. I just want to pick one thing out for us to look at. But before I do that, I just want to turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, just to explain why I'm doing this. This is what Paul says to the church at Rome. He says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And so what we do, I guess, as we listen to preaching, as we're reading the Bible, is we're having our minds renewed. And my hope this morning is, just as we look at this one particular area, I, I, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will renew our minds. That we will be stirred and refreshed in him and pro- possibly maybe our, challenge, our thinking will be challenged as well. Now I think that one of the things that shapes us in our society more than anything else is harsh individualism. There's a harsh individualism that shapes our thinking and pervades our culture. And like I said about the Bible reading, I'm not, I'm not looking to have a go, I just I suppose in a hope, my hope is that as I, I, I preach and communicate that, that the truth will in, impact on your heart and your mind and the Holy Spirit will do his work. When we make decisions, we come at it from a very individual 
perspective, individualistic perspective. We view everything through the lens of I or me as an individual. What is the impact or the benefit to me? What is the loss to me personally? Now, in every society, obviously, I guess there's a degree of selfishness, but I think in our society we've taken it to new heights. To the near exclusion of any personal responsibility for the common good. So you hear a lot about personal choice, you hear a lot about my rights, I must be fulfilled, or I want to be fulfilled personally, as long as I'm happy, um, I need to be comfortable. And in and of themselves, none of those things are wrong on their own, necessarily. But is that how the Bible speaks? Is that what God's people is to act like? Is that how we are to communicate and be? And I believe it's a real battleground. You see, Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves you, all of you, corporately. Nearly all of the epistles, nearly all the letters in the New Testament are written to individuals or churches. To churches, they've got a we perspective. We are a community of people and Jesus gave himself for us corporately. Not you, individually. He gave himself for the church. And I think it's so easy for for the I to come into how we think and how we act in church life. Jesus is delighted when we put personal, selfish agendas aside in order to serve the church and to worship God. Do you know that your personal comfort is not top of his agenda? It's not. Actually, your personal preferences aren't top of his agenda. His glory is top of his agenda and his bride, which isn't, sorry Sheila, I can pick out because you're secure, okay? His bride isn't Sheila. And if she doesn't like, you know, if she doesn't like the rest of us, she's off on her own, she is Jesus' bride on her own. I'm going to be Jesus' bride on my own. No, the bride is the church corporate in a local setting, as we express love, as described earlier. That's, that's the bride of Christ. That's what Jesus came and gave himself for. That's, that's, who, that's who he's perfecting and making holy and set apart for himself. He is passionate about his bride. That's why if you read later on, and I think Santino might get to this later, is if you get to the end of chapter 1, it talks about two men that have been handed over to, to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Why? Because they were damaging the church. The church was more important, the people corporately, us together as a family, is more important than that individual and the, and the false teaching that they were doing. Let me, let me try and use another illustration. If any of you are parents and you've got more than one child, would you not step in if the behaviour of one child is damaging the family or damaging the other children? Would you not do that? Why? 
Because you love the family. Jesus loves his church. There's a we together. Not predominantly an I. And although Jesus does love you personally, I think we can so often major on the I, that he loves me. Me and Jesus. No. New Testament community would have known nothing about that. It's not us together. One new man in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, and we will uh, finish fairly soon. As you come to him, the living stone chosen by men, sorry, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. We are being built. We come, to, we come in through Christ one at a time, but what, as soon as we're in, we're built together in a spiritual house. Sheila is important to me. And I am important as she, and it is replicated right round across the church. Why? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of um, a body. Now you are the now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. it says that in one Corinthians twelve. Each one of you is valuable in it. Not not yeah. You you get the point, don't you? And that's why. One Corinthians thirteen. It's so key because it reflects something of who we are. It reflects something of what we're to be like as we live with one another, as we're a family together with one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. And that's what we're called to do, church. That's what we're called to be. As we push in all the things God's got for us this year, My prayer is that more and more we'd think we. Us together. This is, this is my church. This is my family. When one suffers, we all suffer. That actually, although my personal agenda is this, I'm committed to the church, so I'm going to lay that aside, I'm going to do this, because I know that's what's on God's heart. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your gospel always, thank you your gospel produces practical and visible change in those who've believed it. And we say, Lord God, as a church, we, we want to be so fruitful for you. 
I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that is abounding in love. I thank you we are. But I pray, I suppose my prayer is we are, oh Lord, would we be so much more so. Lord, as more and more people gather in to be with us, I pray they'd be impacted and affected by, Lord, the quality of our relationships, our passion for one another, our our zeal for you. The fact that very rarely, in a sense, that whole I phrase is heard, it's, it's, it's we, your people. Lord, I pray, and I'm sure all of us, to one degree or another, are impacted by it. Like that whole sort of rampant individualistic sort of viewpoint. I pray, would you renew our minds? Would you challenge us? I know we've only just touched it a little bit this morning, but I pray, Lord, that your word would have impact and effect. I pray your spirit would take it and make it live in our hearts. We love you, Jesus, and we want to be a bride that is worthy of you, reflecting your glory to Hastings and beyond. Come and have your way in us, we pray. Bless us this week in all we do. I pray for that. I pray, Lord, as, uh, as the women gather this evening for Empower, would you mightily impact them with, with your Holy Spirit. Pray it be a powerful time of encounter and growing in your truth. Bless them and be with them, I pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.